TGIM, TMRE. This is episode 318. No matter what comes your way, it's exactly where you're supposed to be. So live with it. Don't try to change it and do the next right thing. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Odette Kressler. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Tony. Tony took his last drink October 24th, 2020. He is from Canada and he is 42 years old. Before we get started with today's show, I want to thank all of you who have left a review for the show lately. Feedback is important. Feedback means a lot to us here at Recovery Elevator, and I wanted to say thank you. If you are enjoying the show and have not left a review yet, I would really appreciate it if you went over to iTunes and rated the show and left a nice comment on there. Thank you so much. I love hearing from all of you, and I'm always learning and trying to get better. So gracias, gracias, gracias. All right, let's work on finding your better you. A few weeks ago, I asked our online community and our Instagram followers the question, what is an unexpected perk about this journey? We all know that choosing to ditch the booze will remove our morning hangovers, improve our sleep, help our wallet, and help our bodies be much, much healthier. I mean, after all, we aren't chugging poison night after night. But what about the not-so-obvious outcomes derived from this decision? the ripple effect of choosing an alcohol-free life. I loved reading all of your responses, and I wanted to take a moment to go down this list and share some of those with you all on air. So here we go. Here is what all of you had to say when I asked this question. My ability to manage my finances has improved. My ability to help others who are struggling has improved. I have stronger and more meaningful relationships. I am actually a present participant of my life. I understand and feel gratitude for the first time. Next says, I am more aligned with the person I work so hard to be. Oh, I love that one. I'm a better employee. I'm building my confidence. I have much better hand-eye coordination. I gained the gift of running and being active. I went through this path of emotional discovery understanding my authentic identity and not being so self-conscious and sharing who I am with the world. Wow, that's a beautiful one. This one says, I learned to ski. Everything is possible when you're not hungover. I totally agree. I'm more patient. I'm nicer. My house is cleaner. I have the energy to take some projects that have been overdue in my house. I have positive relationships. I have new friends. I've come to realize that people in sobriety are actually cool and not boring. I've met an amazing group of people. That's a good one. Uh, I run errands that I used to postpone all the time, such as going to the post office. I'm finding that I'm repairing family relationships. I'm a better parent. I'm more firm and I'm able to hold boundaries and be kinder as well. I'm more playful. I don't have to use a shield to hide anymore. And this particular person was talking about glasses and how those glasses were such a shield of the shame of, you know, being hung over. So I love that. I'm not having to use a shield to hide. 
Next says, I discovered I'm actually a morning person. I'm getting to know myself better. I know what it is to have fun. I binge eat less because I used to always hit the drive through up when I was uh, when I was drunk. I have an overwhelming sense of being proud. I love that one. And the last one that I have on my list here says, I'm way more organized. So I moved rapidly through those because the list was much longer than I thought. And all of these are amazing byproducts of our decision. I mean, is it me or are all of these things that we can all benefit from? In my personal experience, the more I stay on this journey, the more I start noticing how the outcome of this decision isn't just sobriety. The outcome of this decision is now a better life, period. Not a perfect life, but one in which I can be an active participant. One in which many of the tools that I use to stay sober actually just become life tools, tools to have a better life. Staying sober becomes enmeshed with this concept of becoming more myself and becoming the best version of myself. I have a few more things that I want to add to this list that I collected from all of you. For me, an unexpected perk of this journey has been that due to this decision, I've become more forgiving of myself and of others. I've realized that the standards I've set for myself in the past are actually standards I set for others as well. And when you're a perfectionist, like I am, you expect other people to be perfect. And of course, you're consistently disappointed because nobody's perfect, right? So you're disappointed in yourself and you're disappointed in others. Nobody's perfect. Nadie. In realizing this, I've discovered a newfound grace towards myself. And this grace is now extended to others as well. This journey has made me feel more connected to my humanity and allows me to see others as flawed human beings that are just like me, just trying their best and learning day by day. I've also learned to become a more effective communicator, less afraid to speak my truth and more comfortable with saying what I really mean versus what I think I need to say. Lastly, I've also been surprised at the fact that this journey has helped me work on the belief that not everybody is going to like me, and that is totally okay. A couple of years ago, I was desperate. I wanted to be liked by everybody. I was so nervous to make people upset or mad, and I was a complete people pleaser. And while I still find myself engaging in people-pleasing behaviors, I'm grateful for the growth I've made here and the new developed self-awareness around this. What's an unexpected perk in your journey so far? All right, eso es todo. That's it for today. Oh, and did someone recently asked what eso es todo means? Because I feel like I did hear that question and eso es todo means that's it. That's it for today. Eso es todo. If you want more Spanish lessons from Odette, just let me know and we'll incorporate maybe a word of the day or something like that. <laughs> and before we hear from Tony, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe Ari. When I decided I wanted to pursue an alcohol-free life, I knew I didn't want to do it alone. I joined Cafe Ari almost immediately after I found it and was so surprised at the amount of grace, support, and love that was offered to me right away. One of the things that I realized was that I had a lot in common with the people in this community, people all over the world with similar feelings and struggles that truly understood me. Community matters, and lining up with people that have the same goal in mind really helped me stay the course on my journey, 
especially when I came across some bumps on the road. When joining Cafe RE, you get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to live an alcohol-free life. These groups are capped at under 400 members to ensure quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking can be fun. For $24 a month, you get access to the community, you get paired with an accountability partner, you can attend educational online webinars, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and more. You'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. 15% of our monthly fees goes towards our service project, where we work with a nonprofit helping those who have been affected by addiction. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I can't wait to see you all there. Tony, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm, I'm good today, Odette. Uh, a little nervous and shaky, but I think I'm, I'm doing, I'll be just fine. <laughs> yes, you're right where you need to be. And I still get nervous sometimes as well. So it's very normal. Just imagine that we're having a cup of coffee together. And I'm just really excited that we're finally doing this. So welcome to the show. And let's get right to it, Tony. When was the last time you had a drink? October 24th of 2020 was the last uh, last drink, drug, or any substance I put into my body. Amazing work. Can you give listeners a little background? Can you let us know where you're from? Do you have a family? What are your hobbies? What do you do for a living? And what do you like to do for fun? Yeah, I grew up in a little town called St. Paul, Alberta, up in Canada. Um, I grew up pretty normal family. My dad was a road builder, so he was on the road a lot, but mom stayed at home with us kids lots. I definitely uh, lived a life of uh, pretty fortunate when it comes to, to money and stuff like that. My dad was always provided well for our family. I have uh, myself, I've had my, uh, I have three kids of my own um, from two different relationships. This, uh, this addiction has taken a lot from me over the years, but I definitely have, uh, I've, I've learned and grown I am a student, a full-time student right now. I used to be a road builder like my dad. The disease of alcoholism took that from me um, just last year in May. I, my career came to an abrupt halt when I checked into a treatment center shortly after that. So yeah, as far as uh, everything else for hobbies, I'm a big avid outdoors person. I like hiking and, and doing anything outdoors. Up here in Canada, we have lots of snow, so I do a lot of tobogganing, as we call it up here, and snowmobiling things along those lines. The We do skiing, snowboarding. My kids and I, when, when I am with them, we, we do a lot of stuff outside. So that's kind of where that is for me. How old are your I, kids, Tony? Son is turning 18 in March. I feel so old. Um, <laughs> I'm 42 years old now, but uh, my son is, is uh, 17. He'll be 18 in March. My oldest daughter is uh, 15. And my youngest daughter is 10 years old. They, uh, they're, they're absolute adorable angels. And I, I love them extremely. My wife and I are separated right now. My third relationship, my, my wife and I, we've never had kids together. But I do have a 23-year-old stepson from that marriage. Yeah, so they're, they're uh, pretty proud of me for, for the path that I'm on as of late. So that's, that's been a bonus for all of this. 
Of course. What great fuel and how awesome that you get to connect with them differently. I'm slightly jealous of all the snow activities that you get to partake in. My son, who's much younger than your kids, he's four. And he kept asking me every single day leading up to Christmas if it was going to snow tomorrow. And I don't know if you know this, but I live in San Diego and we were in Mexico for the holidays. So I broke his heart every day when he asked that question and told him, there will be no snow today, buddy. I'm sorry. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's so unfortunate. But at, at least uh, you don't have to deal with the, the minus 40 weather at times either. So, you know, it's it's a blessing and it's a curse at both at the same time. Right. Yeah, totally. He's just can't wait. And I think he just imagines this winter wonderland with snow and pine trees instead of palm trees. So we'll make it up there. <laughs> someday sometime after all of this COVID travel restrictions are over as well. But uh, thanks, Tony. And can you give listeners some background on your history with drinking? Can you let us know, bring us back to when you started when you realized alcohol wasn't serving you and just tell me tell me your story. Tell me about your life in this journey. Well, I lost my mom in a very tragic car accident at 13 years old. My my youngest sibling, my sister, she was only four months old. So it was a really tough time for our whole family. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I, yeah, it was it was really it changed everything. It changed the whole structure because mom, like I said, my mom was my best friend at that point in my life. So shortly after that was when I took my first drink. It was probably closer to 14. And the first time I drank, I like it was like only a couple of drinks. But at that age and never having done it before, it made me feel almost bulletproof. Right. So I I remember 15 years old, drinking to the point of getting blackout drunk and just waking up in the morning. Yes, I was hungover, but man, I didn't have to feel that pain of losing my mom for, for you know, for that time being. So I I ended up there from, in high school, I was a, a weekend binge drinker. And the thing was, is I, I always managed to do really well in school. You know, I, I was a 80s better honor student. I graduated high school relatively easy. I didn't I didn't stress. I, I didn't graduate with honors from high school because my partying had kind of taken over partying and, and going out and, and doing all that stuff. So at that point, though, um, when I graduated high school, I went out to work on the road just like my dad. Right. And I, and I watched my dad drink a lot over the years. And, you know, it was normalized in my life. I, I come from a family of people that do a lot of drinking and a lot of partying on both sides, like my mom's side of the family, my dad's side. So it was it was normalized in my life. So I would go on periods, you know, weekend binge drinks for two, three days, and then, you know, sober up and carry on with my life and my work. And I, you know, I, I was dating the girl from high school that I had been with for and at the end, we were together for 11 years, had two kids with her. And we were we were happy for the longest time. And then, you know, I got into the oil field up here in, in Canada. And that's a big thing here in Alberta, where I'm from. And the oil field life is on the road all the time. And it's a lot of partying because it's a lot of money. But it's also, I didn't know what to do with that much money, because I knew I knew a couple things. I knew how to work hard and play hard. And essentially, you know, I, I always took care of my family back home, the money was always there. But when I got out of when I got out of on my own on the road, it was me and the guys on the rig. We would be out and we'd be partying. And I think that's where my drinking really started to take off. I didn't recognize it at the time, though, because it was something that I just normalized. Right. Everyone did it. So it didn't I didn't seem like I had a problem. But I would go home 
and, uh, you know, get at home and we'd have get togethers and stuff. And I was always the one getting like to that point of drunk and just chaotic and passing out and hearing the next day about what I did, not remembering a lot of it. But like I said, it was normalized. So I, I left the rigs. I was on the rigs for about five straight years. And when I left there, my dad had offered me a job with the company he works for as uh, one of their crew supervisors. And at that point, I was I really was trying to slow my drinking down. I didn't say I had a problem because I didn't stop drinking, um, but I definitely was slowing it down. You know, my birth of my son was there and my daughter was on the way and I took this job figuring it would be good for our, our family. That led to me just drinking more, isolating myself more from the crew and not dealing with a lot of the emotions that would be brought up on a daily basis with that, with running and managing a crew. I was only 25 years old at the time. So it was a pretty big responsibility. I was in charge of a multi-million dollar crew, right? Like I had 25 people working underneath me and it was just, it was hectic. And the only thing that relieved that stress was at the end of the day, getting back to my hotel room or to my holiday trailer that I was staying in and drinking, right? Like drinking. And it wasn't blackout drinking, but it was, it was a good five or six beers at that time, which to me seemed normal. So yeah, that was kind of where my drinking was really starting to escalate out of control. And at that point, I started messing around with with other women out there in the in the world. Uh, and and the girl that I was with at the time, she was an she's an amazing person. She's her and I are friends today, and it, it's a gift that we're even friends now. But we, uh, yeah, I started kind of messing around and things like that, and you know, finally got caught drinking, partying, messing around. Got caught, promised I'd go straight on everything. And within four months of that, I was back out there drinking and partying again. And and finally, she had enough of me. And that was in 2008, I do believe. The fall of 2007, the spring of 2008. She had enough, basically kicked me out of her life. I had two kids with her, so I was going to be connected to her at some point. And I jumped into another relationship shortly right after. And that relationship was perfect because she drank just like I did. She partied just like I did. She had a son, but it was no big deal, right? And then I never curbed any of my drinking. I, I actually ramped up and I started drinking a heck of a lot more. Sorry to interrupt you. I just want to ask you, you've mentioned a couple of times that drinking was very normalized and you were always functioning and providing. So did you have a lot of thoughts and conversations with yourself where you were aware that this was a problem or because it was so normalized, you just thought, this was the way that that things were. I I truly believe this is you know this was how life was. Wow. Um, like I said, I grew up watching my dad drink and party when he was on the road, and when he came home, he was the best dad in the world. I grew up watching that, right? And it and I never I never knew if 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 he did, and I can't say he did, but if there ever was anything out there with another person in his life, it was never brought home. It was never discussed. And, and I'm, and I know my dad, knowing my dad, the way I know him now, I know my dad was, was a good person. It was his drinking out there, but he never had that problem that I had of taking it to the excess all the time. And he never drank after work daily, right? Like, whereas I would come home and, and I always had a a bottle of whiskey or at least a dozen of beer in the, in the fridge at all times, right? It was just something that I, I had to do. Um, never, I wasn't, overly intoxicated every night but it was I had to have those drinks just to to feel normal again like just to feel calm um it it was really a 
And at that point, I just thought it was normal, right? I grew up in a family of alcoholics. It was just the way it was. Yeah. Um, and of course, after you latched on to a new relationship to have that drinking buddy and having someone continue to enable that behavior, it, it continued to normalize it, right? So I want you to let me know how that unfolded and what happened afterwards. Well, we, uh, we were married in seven months. <laughs> it was a pretty crazy and I know now after all the searching I've done in my life that I did it in spite of my previous girlfriend who we like her and I had been together for 11 years at that point we started dating she was in grade 11 I was in grade 12 so we started dating in high school and things were really good for us but um, so I did it in spite and I know that now knowing how I am and all my character defects that have been surfaced over the years I've definitely, uh, so we were married after seven months. Uh, a year after that, we had our child. And about four months after that, after our marriage, no, about a year and four months, sorry, my daughter would have been three months. My wife was, current wife was asking for a divorce. <laughs> just before that, though, I had gotten into 12-step program just for her. I didn't do anything for me at that point. It was like, okay, I got to save my marriage. I was thinking this was love and this is what I had to do. The reality came to me that, you know, when I got into a 12-step group and I, they, they started telling me it had to be about me. And when I started to get to the point of really taking myself serious, my wife at that time, that's when the divorce came because she wasn't, I don't think she was ready. And I can't say for sure, like I, I'm not, I'm not taking any of her, her stuff away from her, but she was telling me that she, you know, she didn't want to be with me anymore. And I'm, and I'm thinking it was because I had found, I was starting to get healthy, right? I was curbing the drinking. I was stopping the, the whole running around and party scene. And I think some of that kind of led to, to the divorce, which, which was really, really crazy because the story gets even twisted, more twisted here is because <laughs> that day when she filed for divorce, I was back working on the drilling rigs. I left my job as a crew supervisor and I went back to the drilling rigs and I got the news from her lawyer that she wanted a divorce. So I talked to my boss and he told me I needed to go home. The doctor, the doctors had me on Ativan, which at the time they told me was just a, just an antidepressant. <laughs> Without researching it, I realize now that Ativan is a very dangerous drug to be just popping in your mouth without due care. I ended up driving home, blacking out, and I got into a head-on collision with a semi-truck. And that was uh, September 23rd of 2010. I lost my arm on that day. And my wife never did come to the hospital. So it was, uh, I was pretty devastated. At that point, I kinda, I was still in the 12-step group that I was in and it was, it was helping, but you know, my drinking ramped up at that point. I just, I couldn't, you know, it was every weekend again. And I was out and I was looking for another relationship. I was such a codependent person and I still am so codependent that I started looking for another relationship at any cost. And I started doing a lot of stupid stuff. And at this point I was drinking probably five nights a week, trying to rehab from losing my arm and, and so on. And so seven months after my accident, I got offered a job back with my dad's company, pretty much the same position I'd been in before. And my ego said, take it because it was what I needed to do at that time. And then the, uh, the drinking, the party and just it, from there, it didn't matter. I was single at that point and I was, I was just going to do what I was going to do. I remember missing days, like not even knowing where I was for days 
but well, still managing to work, pulling in a paycheck still and making really good money. So I, I didn't think there was a problem with that. It was normalized still. People were praising me. I was getting bonuses at work. Like I was, I thought I was on top of the world, like no one to answer to and I could do what I needed to do. So that's, that's where that part of my life took me. It was, it was pretty scary at that point. Yeah. You uh, were, you were high functioning the entire time. And how was your heart feeling then? It seems like there had been multiple relationships that had ended and then the loss of your mom when you were younger, plus all of the stress of work. So at that point, you'd already attempted to drink less, even had tried AA. How was your heart? Like, did you even enjoy drinking anymore? Or did you start noticing that you were just doing it to numb out? Were you having fun drinking? At that point, I think I was in that transition, Odette, of uh, still kind of enjoying it. But as soon as I got past that point of getting drunk, like because I, I was never fully sober. But once I got to that point of intoxicated, it was just a matter of going through the motions, going to bed and getting up in the morning and going to work. Right. It was something that that just never, never occurred to me that I, I, and I think most of my happiness at that point was pretending. You know, I'd lost my arm, which, you know, I always I, and I've, I'm in good spirits about it because it, the reality is it is it's not going to grow back. I've, I've tried. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, but what what happened at that point was that I just I, I gave up like and not gave up the drinking. I just gave up on life and I figured, you know what, this is the best I'm going to do. You know, at that point, I had met my my current wife, which we're separated now, but I'd met her. And she, we, we really hit it off. We had met through a mutual friend and I was all completely honest with her about my life, about all the craziness in my life and stuff. And, uh, you know, she, she was okay with that. And we, we got together and then for, for a really good period of time, I had a really good, I was happy when I met my wife. I, I was initially like, I was so happy and we we were together. We started dating in 2011. Um, so it was it was about a year and a half, close to two years after I'd lost my arm that we started dating. We were good. Like everything was good. Um, I was I'd curbed my drinking a bit. I'd slowed it down and I was just happy being with her. And, and knowing what I know about myself now, my codependency was very showing very, very much there. So. I, yeah, we, we ended up hitting it off a couple of years later. I proposed to her and she, cause she had went through a pretty nasty divorce too. And I proposed to her and we both had said we'd never get married again. And lo and behold, here mm -hmm. I am proposed. And she was, she was happy about it. Like she, we, you know, we started planning a wedding and, you know, my drinking had really slowed down. My out partying had slowed down, but I, I was starting to build anger and resentment in my life and it wasn't towards her it was just everything in my life was just no matter how much I strived for no matter how much I accomplished I just wasn't happy with it and I, I just kept just every time I'd get a promotion at work I'd want to get to the next level I'd get uh you know this amount of dollars this wage I'd want to get to the next level I'd, I'd, I'd get this vehicle and I'd want to upgrade it and get to something new I just wasn't happy and I was just trying to fill it and I think a lot of it came from not me not drinking because I wasn't filling that void that I had. And so what happened at that point was um, a friend of mine had come to work with me and he was going to a music festival um, up here in, in Alberta, at Camrose, Alberta. It's called the Big Valley Jamboree. And uh, 
he invited us. So we we went, my wife and I went on a, a, the August long weekend. Um, and we, I let loose. And it was the first time in a long time I'd let loose. And I, I was actually, I felt like I was happy there. So that became like a yearly thing. But we started hanging out with these friends and stuff a lot more. And my drinking ramped up again. Yeah, and I was just doing crazy stuff again and, and just being the life of the party. And for me, it was feeling real again. Like it felt like I was alive for, for that very short period of time. Yeah, and then that that job that I went, I, I wanted a job to be more closer to home. And what happened was I got a job working for, for a municipal government right at home. And it, it was a great job. I was there. It was, it was really nice to be at home every night. But the money wasn't there. And I had so many payments that I was drinking every night. Like I would come home. And this was in, uh, I guess it would be 2018 is when I started working there. And I'd, I'd come home every night and I'd go into the, we had a, a, a rec room set up in our garage. Our garage was attached to the house and my wife smoked. So we would, she would smoke in the garage and that's where I'd go. I'd sit out there and I, I'd, I remember coming home, get off work at 4.30, I'd get home by five o'clock. I'd walk into the garage and from there, I wouldn't even eat supper and I'd just go back. I'd go to bed. Sometimes I'd fall asleep in there. Sometimes I'd make it to my bedroom. Sometimes, you know, it was just, it was crazy. And it was like that, right? I worked there for just over a year. But at one point through there, the alcohol stopped working. So I started smoking marijuana. And that was pretty good. <laughs> it, it, it made me, it gave me something new, a new feeling that I'd never felt before. Because I'd never smoked marijuana in my whole life up mm -hmm. until I was 38 years old, 39 years old. So it really opened up a, that, that whole, and that felt like that first feeling of what I got when I drank that first beer back when I was 13 years old. Yeah. So that became a pattern for, for a few months. And then that ended up going to, uh, the, it stopped working really quick. It was probably, I try, I smoked marijuana the first time in June and by April it stopped working or sorry, June, by August it stopped working. Like it was it was crazy like how fast that that just it just stopped working so then i was in pain so then i started doing hard drugs and for the next year and a half i habitually drank smoked pot and did cocaine for a year and a half at least four or five nights a week with the with the hard drugs nobody in my life even knew i i hit it so well but i was just angry and i was devastated like so in the fall of 2019 my wife and I had went and seen some friends in Edmonton, which is a city up here, not too far from where we live. And I was coming down off the drugs and I didn't have any more. And I, her and I got into a huge argument and I was driving and I didn't know what I was going to do. I felt like I, like I was driving over an overpass and I just felt like driving off the overpass. And I just broke down right then and there. And I told her, I said, there, there's, I got to go to rehab. And she said to me, she said, uh, why? I'm like, I'm addicted to cocaine and everything wow. else. And it just shocked her, like her face. She started crying. I was, I was a mess. So the next morning I, uh, I went to the Alberta health services, mental health services, and I got all the paperwork and I ended up getting into the treatment center in uh, Medicine Hat, which is another, it's a, it's about a city of 60,000 people in, in Southern Alberta. And I went to treatment January 4th of 2020 with the full intention of getting clean and sober and saving my family. 
I got out of treatment January 31st. It was a 28 day or so whatever. I think it was February 1st. Irrelevant. It was a 28 day treatment. I got out, started going to AA meetings, started going to CA meetings, doing my 12 steps, worked with a sponsor and I was feeling good again. And then I went back to work. Um, I didn't give myself any time and I went back to work and 45 days after getting out of treatment, I relapsed again. My wife caught me, pretty much gave me the ultimatum. So I promised her, so I switched companies. I went to a different company, got involved there. And it was a really, what I convinced myself that it was a good move. They sent me to Fort McMurray, which is, I don't know what you know about Alberta, but if I mention Fort McMurray to any Albertan and I tell them I'm a drug addict or an alcoholic, they say, why are you going to Fort McMurray? It's an oil field town that's driven, driven by, by money. And, and it just, it's a terrible place for, for an addict to be. And I relapsed and that was the beginning of May. I came home for, I had a, a weekend off. I came home, picked a fight with my wife, destroyed my house, like literally put holes in the wall, tried setting it on fire. I was, I was just crazy. And the next day I try, I, I couldn't get any, any hard drugs. So I was drinking, I was, I drank a, a 40 ounce bottle of scotch straight out of the bottle. I never mixed it, never had anything. It was right out of the bottle while I was driving to Edmonton because I was driving to Edmonton. And this is the one thing that I've never said to a whole lot of people um, other than in my treatment center and maybe my sponsor. I was going to Edmonton to, to buy enough heroin to inject it into my arm that I was never going to wake up again. I had a plan at that point. I, I had thought about death before, but at that point, that was my plan. I had a plan and I was just, I honestly believed the world would be better off if I wasn't in it. I got pulled over by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Don't remember anything at that point. And I woke up in a jail cell. Uh, when I woke up in the jail cell, um, I knew where I was, obviously, but I, uh, I started having chest pains and they called an ambulance and took me to the hospital. When I got to the hospital, um, the doctors checked me over and said, there's nothing wrong with you. They asked me how much I drank. And I said, from what I was told, it was at least a 40 ounce of alcohol straight, like straight scotch. And the doctor said, you were having an allergic reaction. Your body has had enough. So I got my phone out of the, the I was in my company truck. So I obviously lost my job there. I got my phone back and I looked at my phone. And that's when I discovered that I had lined up the, the heroin to to just kill myself because I thought there was no other way. At that point, my son had drove, driven me to get my phone. So he took me, I, I just said, you need to take me to the hospital. And he thought I was having physical chest pains again. I said, no, I said, this is way worse. So I checked into uh, the psych ward at the Grey Nuns Hospital in Edmonton, Alberta. And they sent me back to treatment. About 15 days later, I managed to get into a treatment facility right away. And I opened up got honest about who I was and what I was doing. And just, you know, when I got out of treatment, I decided I wanted to go back to school. I had no job, so I just wanted to go back to school. And when I went back to school, I applied for a community support worker program in British Columbia, which is about 11 or 12 hours from, from where I grew up. And BC is to the west of Alberta. Really nice in the mountains. It's called the Okanagan Valley. Beautiful part of the world. Beautiful lakes, mountains, like just everything. And I went out there to go to school, which was great. Like I was enjoying school, and but I, I isolated myself and I ended up relapsing. And then on October 23rd, when my last time, when I took my last drink and my last drug, 
Um, I was sitting on my couch, and I remember this, and I'll never forget this. On my right-hand side, there was a gun. And on my left-hand side, there was my phone with my sponsor's phone number on it. And it took me three hours, but after those three hours, I picked up the phone and not the gun. Called my sponsor, and lo and behold, I started working my program, my steps, and being honest with myself and with everyone around me. And 75 days later, here we are. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a pretty dark point in my life. Like I said, this is the first time I've ever shared my story on, on a format like this. But I have been, I, I've been asked twice now to speak at the treatment center here in Medicine Hat because I moved to Medicine Hat to go to school here. I moved back to Alberta after I, I, I it's, it's a long story, but I got kicked out of school in BC. Um, nothing, I didn't do anything bad. <laughs> it was, uh, it was a, I have a criminal past, right, because of the charges and stuff. Mm-hmm. So that was the reason that I got, I, I was asked to leave basically from school. And I applied to a different program in Medicine Hat. And my sponsor lives here in Medicine Hat. So it was a good move. So I've been asked to speak at the treatment center a couple of times through Zoom. And you know what, it's every time I tell this story, it does get a little bit lighter every single time. My first question after listening to every setback that you had and how you just kept trying again and you even had some reverse intervention moments where you were the one telling people I need to do this for myself telling your wife telling your son drive me here you were being your own advocate even through the darkest of times so what do you think has been a contributing factor to that resilience that you seem to just have in terms of starting again and continuing to try um, a big part of my, my resilience, I guess, comes from my dad. Um, my dad is, uh, I, I don't know if he's ever going to hear this, um, but he's my hero. Like, I don't know if he's going to listen to the podcast, but he's been one of those people that no matter how many times he's been kicked down, he's gotten back up. You know, he quit drinking and he was so fortunate. Like when he quit, that was it. He was done. Like never touched it again. He's been one of those people in my life that have always been there for me. And, you know, losing my mom, how he made it through that. And he drank through that, but it wasn't wasn't like he lost his life because of it like I did. He, he made it through stronger on the other side, right? So um, he's definitely been a, a hero in my eyes. And he's definitely... Uh, definitely helped me realize who I really am even though at times I I used to used to tell him that I didn't want him around in my life and I tried to take him out of my life and I think that was the addict in me trying to just just sabotage right yeah you touch on some very important points outside of addiction of the substance codependency self-sabotage you know a lot of these other added traits that are, are enmeshed with our addiction and and I hope you know that now you are being that hero to your kids. You know, it's so easy for me to see as an outsider that whatever your timeline was in and it as different as it is from your dad and how maybe he didn't have the cycle that you did of having to start over, you are your kids' hero and future generations will benefit from this change. And I think that's really powerful and I like to keep that at the forefront of my recovery, at least, and other people who have families, even if you don't have children, you know, just taking that responsibility and accountability for yourself. And you said 
that this addiction has taken your life away, which it has, but what a relief to know that you're alive and that you have a blank slate and that your life isn't over. Your life is just starting. Does that give you any hope? How do you feel when you think about that? Honestly, I've in the last 75 days of my sobriety, because I've gotten I, I was I had quit drinking for the longest time. I was sober for a long time, but I wasn't recovering these last 75 days. And I say this with full conviction is I've never been happier. And it's been a godsend for me. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know why I couldn't be happy before. But right now, I, I just truly am grateful that I didn't pick up the gun because <laughs> it was it was there. You know, I love telling my story to other people. I love, you know, like my son and I are he's my best friend for sure. Hands down. He's my best friend. And he always tells me, he's like, Dad, you're the one that told me you're the one that made me who I am. And I'm really proud of that. So, you know, it's it is something that I, I am. I am proud of it because. There was a point in my life where I didn't think I could put down any of the substances that I had, and I didn't think I had the willpower, or and I didn't have the willpower, right? I didn't. I, my life has been a a walking recovery story for sure. You know, it started I it started out young, like I was I think I was 28 years old the first 12 step meeting I went to, but as long as I did, I kept lying to myself that it wasn't really a problem. So that's been a it's been a journey that's for sure <laughs> yeah that's for sure tell me about how your physical body has been healing because these 75 days you shared have been different for you and it seems like you're deep rooted in gratitude instead of this more 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 state of being that you seem to be trapped in for a little bit so tell me about the body because our mind makes a decision and, and it seems like you reached out to the right people and you were you had a sponsor right then when you made the choice. And how has your body reacted to your commitment again? Because the body keeps a score and, and it takes time to heal. So how has it been? Have you had a lot of withdrawals? How has your body felt? I was pretty fortunate because when I went into the the treatment center the last time, I had detoxed and I was I was good. And I coming out, I had never went on full-on benders like I, I wasn't drinking for for months at a time or weeks at a time or even days at a time like my, my two times using out in Kelowna was two and a half days and I was done and I dried up and I hated myself and was this and that but I didn't I didn't have that full-blown full detox coming out of me at that point so I was lucky this time around that I didn't I didn't have the cold sweats and I didn't have all the shakes and all that stuff. It was just a matter of, you know, I'd let my body go. I, I, I used in high school I was a I was an athlete, right? I was a track star. I played volleyball. I played basketball. I did I did all the sports. I even played football, right? From that time though, once I started drinking heavily and, and more so like my body, I like I said, when I lost my arm, I was 198 pounds. I was in the best shape of my life. And before, just before I, uh, just before the end of October, when I quit everything, I was 250 pounds. I've now successfully lost like 20 pounds because I don't put all the wasted, you know, alcohol carbs into my body anymore. And I've actually started hiking and doing a lot more things that help my body out. And I don't, I don't beat my body up anymore with days without sleep. Right. So it's definitely been my my body feels 
amazing right now, right? And and I, I know I've seen people that have detoxed at, at day 20 that are still throwing up and sick mm-hmm. and and I and I my heart bleeds for them because I was there. I had to do that too. And I, I was just fortunate this last time around that I it was it wasn't as as gruesome as it could have been. Yeah. How grateful you must feel for your body. You know, it's just it knows what to do. It's keeping up with your decision. And I'm just I'm really happy to hear that you're you're feeling good. Tell me a little bit more about the heart. I love your spirit. You even laughed a couple times and your lightheartedness in spite of all the pain that you've had in your life. And tell me about healing all of this, you know, from the loss of your mom, the loss of a limb, the loss of relationships. How do you heal this part of yourself now that you're recovering? How do you deal with all of those feelings that come up? Do you still rely on talking to a sponsor? How are you working through that grief? I, uh, I have a, I have actually have two sponsors and my one sponsor, I talk to him every morning for minimum of 30 minutes. Sometimes we get carried away and it's an hour, an hour and a half. And both of us are late for whatever we're doing. <laughs> I carry my message to, I, I talk to at least another addict or alcoholic every single day. I, I need to stay connected to, to the people that have helped me get clean and sober. You know, I, I do a lot of a lot of AA meetings. I do. A, I even I go to NA meetings, which which have been great for me. I, I see a therapist uh, once a month. I see a trauma counselor once a month. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I'm a big old bag of messed up in the head. But you know what? It, it's OK. And, and my biggest thing that I learned, and this is what my AA sponsor has taught me. He said, no matter what comes your way, it's exactly where you're supposed to be. So live with it. Don't try to change it and do the next right thing. And that for me, I don't know what it was about that statement that day. That was that was in October when he said that to me, something clicked. And you know what? Life life's going to deal me some shitty, shitty hands at poker. (laughs) Trust me. But the reality is there's nothing that I can't get through if I just do the right thing. Yes, there's this quote and 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 you know what I was I'm so happy to hear that you received that well because a lot of the times when we're in pain and we hear these phrases like everything happens for a reason you're right where you're meant to be it's like no like the the pain is so strong sometimes that it's hard to accept that and I I'm just really grateful that you did accept that because it's it's true and in hindsight every every setback is something that we learn from and that we get stronger from. It's just really hard when you're actually working through it. One of my favorite quotes says, act as if life was rigged in your favor. You know, just act as if. Sometimes you don't want to believe it. You don't want to feel that way. But act as if it was rigged in your favor because it is. And the more we learn to accept that, the more we will make the journey a little bit lighter. And I like your sponsor. You got a good one. <laughs> yes, he's, he's amazing. He's amazing. He's such a good sponsor. My, my AA sponsor and I, we don't talk nearly as much as we sh- we used to. But you know what? He's all if, if I picked up the phone right now, he'd be he'd be there. I, I have an amazing support group. Medicine Hat has been just it, it blows my mind at how well the recovery is here. 
And it, it shows because there's a lot of really good people in this city. And you know what? That's That's been another gift in my recovery, right? Like, I... I wanted to move here for that very reason. The schooling was a bonus that I got into school here, but moving here was just awesome. It just worked out everything. And that's what I say. Like every day I got it written above my stove. I've got a chalkboard there that's supposed to be for hanging recipes on and, and writing recipes down and stuff. And I got it written on that board today is a gift. So be grateful because it really is. It really, really is. So we just have to, Enjoy the day, stay in today, and that's do the next right, right thing. As you said, that's one of our team members here at Recovery Elevator, also a fellow brother in recovery, Chris. He says that all the time. You know, just do the next right thing. Just do the next right thing for yourself. And then when you take care of yourself, the bigger things take care of themselves. So I'm just happy you're, you're on this journey and I'm so happy you reached out, Tony. We've reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? I am. Okay. What are you excited or hopeful about right now? I'm excited to get my schooling completed. Um, I graduate next November, but I'm, I'm excited to get most of this completed because I'm looking into another program into taking addictions counseling. So I'm, uh, yeah, I'm really excited that life is getting great, getting better every day. What would you say to your younger self, Tony? Don't give up on yourself. You're going to have bad days, but there's going to be a lot more good days in the future. Don't give up. What's your favorite ice cream flavor? I'm pretty plain. I'm like a vanilla with chocolate syrup and a little bit of sprinkles. I, uh, I'm i not a big ice cream person, and I know that you you don't like that. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm not a big ice cream person. And honestly, I eliminated a lot of sugars and stuff out of my diet when I, when I really started taking my recovery series. So I'm a pretty vanilla guy when it comes to that. And vanilla with a little bit of chocolate syrup is probably the best way for me to go. And tell me something else since you're Canadian. Do you like Tim Hortons? I do, but funny thing is, is I prefer the McDonald's coffee over the Tim Hortons. And don't get me wrong, I like Tim Hortons, but it's it's interesting how, and it's a pretty big argument up here in Canada because there's, we're split. <laughs> yeah, we're I, can, split. I, I lived in Vancouver for two years when I was 11 years old and I wasn't a coffee drinker back then. But I loved the donut holes. And I just they're part of like that. It's such a memory for me just stopping at Tim Hortons. My family and I did a, mm -hmm. a trip from Vancouver all the way to Edmonton and then and, and back. I think I, it was a long time ago, but I just remember stopping at so many Tim Hortons on the way and just eating so <laughs> many donuts. <laughs> yeah, the, the Tim bits. Yeah, the Tim Hortons Tim bits for sure. Um, there. The, and that, that even with that comes to those, I'm pretty plain on those. I just like the chocolate glazed ones. So <laughs> I'm when it comes to that, I, I, I'm I'm pretty vanilla. <laughs> yeah. And I guarantee you that I, I, I joke a lot about how much I love ice cream. But someone who does struggle with depression and some levels of anxiety, you know, how much sugar you intake does change your your emotional and your mental state. So when you said that you removed a lot of things from your diet when you took your recovery seriously. I mean, it it's crazy when, when we are ready to take those other steps. There are tools to make us feel better and not feel physically 
as sluggish or as tired. So I'm glad you started discovering what those things can be for you. Tell me, Tony, what parting piece of guidance can you give listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? That, you know, no matter what, you're not alone. I know for a lot of times I felt like nobody would understand. I always thought I was different than everyone. And, you know, give people that are reaching out to you or reaching out to you for a reason. So give them a chance. Allow allow them to help you. And you know what? Like like my my couple people always say in my, my recovery, let them love you until you're ready to love yourself. That was a big one for me. And before we depart, Tony, give listeners your own. You may have to say adios to booze if line. I was thinking about this one and I wanted to come up with a really clever one. Um, and <laughs> it's kind of an interesting story, but uh, you may have to ditch the booze if you are drinking Jack Daniels and Coke out of your prosthetic arm. I guarantee yeah. you we won't get anything similar to that. I'm almost <laughs> sure. <laughs> It was, uh, yeah, it was quite the, uh, it was quite the night. It was a camping trip. It was, yeah, I, let's just leave it at that. I wasn't, it, at the time, it seemed like a really proud moment. But now that I look back at it, it was a really sad time in my life. Tony, I'm so happy that you are here. I'm so happy that you reached out to me and that we got you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Stay connected. Let me know when you start going to school to become an addiction counselor, because I know you're going to kick some major, but I have a good feeling about that choice. So keep me posted. Let's stay connected. And thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Take care, Tony. Very well, Team RE. That wraps up our interview for today. And before I say adios, I want to share one last thing on my unexpected perks of sobriety list. This perk came after year one, but it is one that I'm really enjoying. I'm learning to slow down and I really like it. I was used to having a full plate all the time. I mean, I'm still used to it. In many days, I still have an extremely full plate. But the difference now is that on days where I'm not as busy, I don't look for extra things to fill up my time because I no longer need to distract from the discomfort of sitting with myself. I like who I am, so I don't hide from myself. My sense of worthiness and belonging have been there all along, but now I can actually feel it. Instead of chasing a high, I'm kind of chasing a low now. And by this, I mean, I'm chasing the pauses, the moments where I can just sit and see my life and feel my feelings without the fear that I won't know what to do with them when they arrive. Like the net and the butterfly analogy, I've transitioned from frantically chasing butterflies to just sitting with my net, chilling, and waiting for one to land in my net. Side note though, like I said earlier, nobody is perfect. I am still a crazy Latina that sometimes gets extremely overwhelmed, especially when we run out of spicy chili mango around here at the house. But hey, progress, not perfection, right? Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery Elevator This journey is full of unexpected surprises, so let's enjoy the ride. I love you guys. How do you know this is the experience you need? Because this is the experience you're having at this moment. In the seeing of who you are not, the reality of who you are emerges by itself. 